Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Whispering Box Mystery by John Blaine. Volume 5 Chapter 9 The Menace at the Memorial Scotty took a last sip of water and pushed back his chair. Now I feel better. That was a good meal. Rick was comfortably full too after a dinner of barbecued spare ribs, salad, and pie. Now what do we do? It's almost eight o'clock. Time had flown since they had left the laboratory. They'd started in the general direction of the Lincoln Memorial, but had been sidetracked. The squirrels and pigeons in Lafayette Park had taken over an hour of their time, particularly the squirrels. The little animals, probably the best fed of their kind, had made begging for peanuts a science. The boys, like most other visitors to the park opposite the White House, had purchased peanuts to feed the fat little beggars. Tiring of the squirrels, they walked to New York Avenue and 14th Street, and on impulse had gone into the newsreel theater to see a one-hour show of news, cartoons, and sports features. Now Rick and Scotty left the restaurant and paused on the sidewalk to consider their next move. Phone call to the hotel had informed them that they were not wanted for anything. We can still go to the Lincoln Memorial, Scotty said. That's okay with me. They were silent as they walked down 20th Street to Constitution Avenue. Rick's thoughts were busy on the problem of Weiss and Zircon. He had tried to convince himself that the scientists were probably safe, but he had to admit there were no good grounds for such optimism. The only thing hopeful in the situation was that the gang, so far as was known, had yet to commit murder. Anyway, Scotty said aloud, they wouldn't have anything to gain by getting rid of Weiss and Zircon. You've been reading my mind, Rick accused. How did you know what I was thinking? Scotty smiled. I didn't, but I'm not surprised. I guess it's been on both our minds. They'll turn up one of these days, Rick said with more confidence than he felt. Sure, they're all right. Both of them have been in tougher spots than this. They had reached Constitution Avenue. Across the street was the old Navy Department building, and next to it the beginning of the park grounds surrounding the Lincoln Memorial. It'll be dark pretty soon, Rick remarked. Doesn't the memorial close? Not until nine o'clock. Besides, night is the best time to see old Abe. The way they've arranged the lights makes you think he's going to get right out up out of that chair and come down and speak to you. Scotty turned up Constitution and they walked past the Federal Reserve Building, then the National Academy of Sciences Building that had been turned into a clearinghouse for scientific information. Rick had read about the new government scientific information center and what the building contained. In his files were documents from scientific authorities all across the world. If a researcher wanted to know what work had already been accomplished in his particular field, they could tell him. He wished he could have a chance to go through those files. Perhaps it could be arranged before they left Washington. We cross here, Scotty said. As they waited for the light to change, 
Rick looked up a small hill on their side of the avenue. Inside a high wall were what appeared to be barracks. He asked Scotty about them. Well, there's a naval hospital a little farther up, Scotty explained. Those particular buildings are barracks. There's a Marine Guard detachment there. They crossed Constitution as the light turned green, then hiked through the park toward the Lincoln Memorial. It was already growing dark as they reached the edge of the reflecting pool in front of the building. Rick looked up to the memorial through the great marble columns to where Abe Lincoln sat, illumined in light and shadow. He started across the roadway to the marble steps and then stopped, seeing that Scotty lingered behind. What's up? he asked as Scotty joined him. I'm not sure, but I think we've picked up a tail. A tail? Yeah, somebody's following us, I think. Rick stared into the trees. I don't see anybody. Neither do I now, but I have a hunch we've been followed ever since we left the restaurant. I got a quick look at the man a couple of times, but I thought it was just another guy out for an evening stroll until we crossed Constitution. Then he came hot-footing it after us. Rick frowned. Are you sure? I wouldn't want to swear to it, but yeah, pretty sure. Let's cross over and go up to the memorial and keep your eyes open. Rick agreed, more than a little perturbed. What had Pete Davis said about their having nothing to fear? Maybe it's one of Steve's men keeping an eye on us. Not a chance, Scotty denied. Steve's men aren't the kind who'd let themselves be seen. They crossed and mounted the long steps of the memorial. It was growing dark rapidly, but people thronged the stairs. Abe Lincoln was easily the most popular of all the Washington memorials. As Rick went up the long climb, he forgot for a moment that he was supposed to be watching for a pursuer. The huge statue of Lincoln, seated in a massive chair, was in such perfect proportion that it almost seemed normal size. The wonderfully arranged lights gave the illusion of reality. Every detail was perfection, even the veins in his great hands and the folds of Lincoln's clothing. Rick drew in his breath. Always imaginative, he felt as though the great emancipator were about to rise and speak. Scotty shattered the illusion. Keep an eye open. Wish it weren't quite so dark. They reached the top level of the memorial and turned, looking down the stairs to the road. Rick searched the edge of the trees along the roadway, beyond the reflecting pool. For an instant, the headlamps of a passing car picked out a figure. He grabbed Scotty's arm. Is that the guy? Yep, that's the Joker. I wish we could get a look at his face. Rick spotted a soldier just coming up the steps. He had a pair of field glasses slung over his shoulder. Maybe we can, he said. Scotty saw the soldier, too. Wait, he cautioned. Don't be obvious about it. Well, we'll wait until he gets inside, then ask him if we can use the glasses for a minute, Rick agreed. If we look from the shadow of a pillar, maybe our friend down there won't know we're onto him. They retreated into the shadow of the pillars and waited until the soldier reached them. Rick smiled at him. I see you have a pair of glasses. Would you mind if we took a look through them for just a minute? There's something we'd like to check on. The soldier hesitated a moment. Scotty motioned to the patch on his shoulder. How's the old 27th Division? The soldier grinned. About as usual. Were you in it? Second Marines, Scotty said, but I knew a lot of guys in your outfit. The soldier unslung the glasses. Most of them are civilians now. Here, take a look while I pay my respects to Honest Abe. Thanks, soldier. 
Rick took the glasses and then stepped to the shadow of a pillar from which he could see the edge of the trees across the road. Scotty was at his shoulder. Rick focused the glasses quickly, but he could see only the vague figure of a man. Here, let me have a look, Scotty begged. Rick gave the glasses. You can't see much. Scotty pointed the binoculars and studied the scene below for long minutes, and he lowered the glasses. If a car would only come by and turn up the right-hand road, we can get a real good look. Rick saw the soldier was a few yards away, looking up at the statue. I guess he doesn't want the glasses for a few moments. Hang on until the car passes. One of the park police officers who guard Washington public buildings had been watching. He sauntered over, curious about what they were looking at. You see anything through those? He asked. Not much, Scotty answered. Waiting for a car to pass. There's a man down there we want to look at. What for? We think he's following us, Rick said. Following you? What would anybody want to follow you for? Rick looked at Scotty. They couldn't very well go into detail. Steve Ames had cautioned them not to talk to anyone. Presumably that included police officers. We don't know why he's following us, Rick said. That was true anyway. Are you sure he is? No, Scotty admitted. The officer snorted. Sounds to me like you kids have been seeing too many movies. He turned and walked back to the other side of the monument. Well, there was no help there, Rick said. Hey, Scotty, here comes a car. See if he makes a right-hand turn. Scotty already had the glasses to his eyes. Rick watched as the car swung slowly toward the right road. The headlight beams moved across the pavement and picked out the dim figure at the edge of the trees. Holy smoke! Scotty exclaimed. What is it? Rick demanded. Scotty put down the glasses. He handed them to Rick, a strange expression on his face. I don't want to say anything until I'm sure. You better take a look. Here, quick. Rick accepted the glasses, then kept watch for the next auto to come their way. He searched Scotty's face. His pale looked grim. What? What is it? He asked again. I'd rather not say. I don't want to influence your judgment. You decide for yourself. All right. Cars were coming their way around the Lincoln Memorial. If only one made the correct turn, then one neared and then swung right. Rick raised the glasses as headlights speared the figure at the edge of the trees. Rick saw the man's face clearly, and he felt a swift sensation as though somebody had kicked him in the stomach. You're right, Scotty, he said huskily. What had Pete Davis said? We're not worried about you. The gang isn't interested in anybody but the scientists. The man at the edge of the trees was the driver of the kidnap sedan, and he was holding what appeared to be a camera, but it wasn't. It was the Whispering Box. Chapter 10 Rescue from the Sky The soldier joined them and asked, You threw with the glasses? Rick handed them to him. Yes, thanks very much. That's okay. Did you see what you wanted to see? Scotty grinned wryly. We saw what we didn't want to see. That didn't make any sense to the soldier. He slung the glasses over his shoulder by their strap and gave them a puzzled smile and said, Well, see you later. Thanks again, Scotty said. As the soldier left, he drew Rick deeper into the shadow of the pillar. You got any suggestions, pal? I don't know. Is he after us? Or is he just keeping track of us? If I had to make any bets, I'd say he wanted us for his specimen collection. 
Well, he can't do it single-handedly. How do we know he's alone? Scotty gestured at the cars parked in the area. His friend is probably one of those, waiting for him to put the freeze on us with his little box. Rick agreed that was likely. Then all we have to do is keep away from any roads where there isn't much traffic. Yeah, you make it sound so simple. Scotty peered out of the shadows. He's still there, and if we do cross the park area, what's to keep him from just picking us off, then motioning for his friends to come help him and lug away the bodies? Nothing, Rick admitted. But what if people see what's happening and try to interfere? Scotty made a short, high, whispering noise. Zip, and then those people will lose interest in a hurry. On account of why? On account that he could knock them over, too, with the whispering box. Rick finished grimly. He looked over to where the two park policemen were talking. They won't be of much help. Not much. Before they could even reach for their guns, they'd be flat on their faces, wondering what had hit them. Rick shivered. Well, then what can we do? I don't know, Scotty said. Rick leaned against the marble pillar and felt the chill of the stone through his coat. If we could outrun the box, we'd be all right. Pete Davis said it only worked at a limited distance. That's one answer, Scotty agreed. He had been keeping watch on the man with the whispering box. Now he gripped Rick's arm. He's coming around the front of the monument, probably wondering why we're spending so much time up here. Rick thought rapidly. Between the row of columns and the building itself was a corridor that went completely around the memorial. He asked, Are there steps in back? Scotty tried to remember. No, I'm pretty sure there aren't. But it isn't a very high drop. We could jump, make it. Then let's get going. Hugging the columns, Rick led the way around the building, going toward the side away from the pursuer. They passed the policeman. The one who had spoken to them grinned and waved. Rick grinned back a little stiffly. They reached the corner of the building and turned down the side facing the Potomac River. Then Rick increased his speed. In a moment, they were at the back of the memorial. He looked out to the memorial bridge, trying to estimate their situation. Under them, the road curved all the way around the building. Directly ahead was the river. To their left was the bridge. On the right were park areas, thinly dotted with trees along the edges and with baseball diamonds in their centers. There wasn't much cover. Where now? Scotty asked. Let's make it fast. Rick noticed that Riverside Drive, the road along the riverbank, ran under the approach to Memorial Bridge. The bank dropped sharply away in several places. If they could reach that underpass, they might be able to conceal themselves there. Here we go, he said, and dropped to his hands and knees, and swung by his hands and let go. He landed in a bush that drove thorns into him, but he didn't stop to investigate. With Scotty close behind, he made a dash across the road, heading for the parking area next to the bridge approach. A horn sounded, three sharp blasts, then three more. A car parked on the side of the road coughed into life. Rick stopped short. It had to be the gang car. It had signaled. It's between us and the river, Scotty exclaimed. Come on, double back. Rick ran, heading back toward the front of the memorial, angling away from the river. As he sprinted, he kept an eye on the point where the man on foot would probably emerge. There was no sign of him. Keep going, Scotty urged. They had crossed the road and were running parallel to Riverside Drive, heading in the direction of the city. Keep away from the trees, Rick urged. We'll make it. 
Scotty threw a glance over his shoulder. I can't figure out where the guy with the box went. This is too easy. Step on it, Rick pleaded. He increased his speed, running easily. Scotty stepped up his pace until their strides matched. They were getting away from the memorial now. A car shot by on Riverside Drive swung to the curb and screeched to a stop a short distance away. To the river, Rick yelled. He swerved sharply and almost bumped into Scotty. No wonder they hadn't seen the man with the box. The car had picked him up and then whipped down Riverside Drive after them. He groaned. There were so many streets around the Lincoln Memorial. A car could follow them almost anywhere. He looked over his shoulder. The man with the box was out of the car and running too, in a direction that would head them off. Double back, Scotty gasped. They turned sharply and headed back in the direction from which they had come. Right up the road, Rick said through clenched teeth. They can't turn around fast enough to get us until we're past the memorial. Then we can turn again. Maybe we can lose them. The man with the box had stopped trying to head them off. Instead, he was running toward Constitution Avenue, away from the river. Rick saw the strategy at once. The man could double around and always manage to stay between them and civilization. Meanwhile, the car would keep them running. Eventually, they would have to stop from sheer exhaustion. They were trapped in a wedge-shaped area with the Lincoln Memorial as the pointed tip of the wedge and the river as the opposite tip. The sides of the wedge were streets. The only escape would be across the bridge, but they could never make it on foot before the car overtook them. He wondered if the man in the car also had a whispering box and decided that he must. The car was turning around, ignoring the one-way street sign. The gang had nothing to fear with the whispering box in their hands. Let a policeman object, and a short blast from the box would take care of him. The bridge approached loomed ahead. They would pass right under it. Kept to the other side of the underpass. Then we can duck, Scotty said. Rick, run! They shot into the darkness of the short underpass, and the car lights were gaining on them. If they turned right, the man with the box would be waiting. If they turned left, the river would block them. But the river was better than the whispering box. Go left, Rick directed. He was worried because he could feel his breath coming faster now. They couldn't keep running forever. To the left of the underpass were row after row of seats on terraces leading down to the river. In the river was a barge built like a stage. They had reached the place where Washington held many of its outdoor concerts. The car roared through the underpass and skidded to a stop. Rick turned frantically, looking for a way out. The only way was along the riverbank, going upstream from the concert area. He led the way, leaping right over the low benches. He didn't know the range of the whispering box, but he was afraid it could reach them. He wanted desperately to look back to see if the driver had gotten out of the car, but he didn't dare. They reached the opposite side of the deserted amphitheater in safety but their situation still wasn't very much improved. The man with the box was somewhere nearby, up the road to their right, and behind them was the car. Rick risked turning and saw the driver had got out of the car. He was starting after them, and he had his own box in his hand. Why didn't he use it? The distance was about a hundred yards, not more. So the box didn't operate effectively at that distance. If they could keep a hundred yards away, they were safe. The riverbank was narrowing to a grassy tree belt. Scotty stopped short, digging his heels into the turf. And Rick saw why. The first man with the box had cut across and was waiting for them. 
Now they were between two fires. If they could break out halfway between the two men, Rick looked for a way, and he thought he saw it. There was another underpass a short distance ahead where Riverside Drive ran under the beginning of the Rock Creek Parkway. He didn't remember the names of the streets, of course, but he recognized the possibilities. If they angled a little to the right, they might be able to reach the underpass before the first man of the box could. It depended on how much faster they could run than he could. Rick sprang for the underpass, running all out, Scotty abreast of him. He could see the man with the box clearly. He saw him angle over to intercept them, running fast. Why didn't a car come? Some strange car that might get between them for a moment. Rick stifled a gasp. They weren't going to make it by much, if at all. Behind them, he heard a car door slam and shut and the clash of shifting gears. He knew that even if they reached the underpass, the car would be close on their heels. He sensed that neither of their pursuers was worried about the outcome. The car was content merely to keep them moving, knowing that their endurance must wear down soon. The man on foot would tire too, but not before they did because he didn't have a spar to run. Rick recalled that the driver of the kidnapped sedan had been young. He was the one who was now trying to cut them off at the underpass. They wouldn't outrun him by much. The underpass was directly ahead. The man with the box was too close for comfort, and the car was coming. Rick somehow found more speed in his hard-driving legs, and for an instant he pulled away from Scotty, but his pal caught up with him in long strides. They reached the underpass and shot through it. They had beaten the man with the box, but not by enough. Rick heard the shrill high whisper of the box, and his stride faltered. The sound ceased. He could no longer hear the car, but he was still running. He shot a glance at Scotty and saw that his friend, although weaving unsteadily, was still moving ahead. They passed the edge of the underpass and turned to the right, scrambling up the bank. Scotty's lips moved, but Rick couldn't hear what he was saying. What did she say? He panted. He couldn't even hear his own voice. A field stretched ahead of them. Across the field lay Constitution Avenue. If they could reach it, they might be able to get into a building. If only they could rest. Rick's heart was pounding and his lungs ached. He knew his legs were unsteady and that he lurched as he ran. Why was he able to run at all, though? The whispering box had hit them, but from too far away. The high frequency had deafened them and had partially upset their equilibrium, but it hadn't made them helpless. They could still run in a shambling gait. Rick turned to see where their pursuers were now. He turned too far, and his unsteadiness betrayed him. He slipped and fell in the road. Somehow, Scotty got into his feet again. Scotty was saying something, but Rick couldn't hear. He steadied himself and started off again across the field. They passed through a narrow belt of trees and into the field itself. In the instant of falling, he had seen what was happening. The car had shot past, heading for the corner, so it could turn down Constitution and cut them off. The man on foot was right behind them, but not close enough yet to bring the box into full play. Rick looked back again, but more carefully, and saw him come through the trees. He was running with less speed. Rick guessed that he was tiring. Constitution Avenue seemed awfully far away. Besides, the car had already passed them. What was the use? Rick kept his legs going and concentrated on keeping his balance. He thought the deafness was clearing a little. They had got only a mild dose of ultrasonics this time. He could see the car clearly now. 
It turned the corner and started down Constitution. If he and Scotty separated, it would confuse their pursuers. Why hadn't he thought of that before? He tried to yell instructions, but he could hear his voice, only as a faint, faraway sound. He tugged Scotty's arm and motioned for him to go to the right. He himself would angle to the left. The car wouldn't know which of them to head for, and the man behind wouldn't know which one to follow. He hoped. They were almost across the field now. Rick headed for the left toward the car that was coming down Constitution, but keeping well away from it. There were other cars, of course, but he was interested only in the one with the whispering box. The others couldn't help him. If anybody interfered, the box would come into play. He saw the car slow down. He turned and started back the way he had come, fainting to confuse the man in the car. He was between the car and the running man with the box now. The car speeded up again to cut him off. He didn't about face. The car slowed, but it had gone a few feet beyond him. It couldn't turn around now. Rick reached the edge of the field. He ran in the opposite direction from which the car was heading. He looked back quickly and saw the man with the box was still coming after him. The car had to be after Scotty now. Rick stumbled and almost fell as his ankle turned on a stone. Inspiration hit him. He picked up the stone, gauged the distance, and heaved it with all his strength. The stone arched through the air and landed with a splinter of glass. The car skidded to a stop. Rick saw Scotty follow his example. A well-placed rock landed on the left headlight. It winked out. Rick hadn't stopped moving except to pick up the stone. Now he sped across the avenue, angling back towards Scotty, who was also crossing. The man on foot with the whispering box had reached the sidewalk and was just stepping onto the street. Scotty motioned to Rick to join him, not breaking his stride. They were at the foot of 23rd Street. Across Constitution Avenue, the driver of the car had gotten out and joined the chase. Both he and the man with the whispering box were rapidly overtaking them now. Rick could hear clearly again. He heard Scotty's yell to keep moving. He rounded the corner and ran up 23rd Street, noticing that he no longer had trouble keeping his balance. His breath was coming in painful gasps, and his vision kept blurring with fatigue. He thought despairingly he couldn't run for much further, but the pursuers were closing the distance. There was a high wall to Rick's left and some kind of temporary buildings across the street. He saw no place where he and Scotty might find sanctuary. Every breath was an effort now, and when he tried to breathe deeply, it was like a knife thrust to his lungs. He knew he couldn't last much longer. Scotty was ahead of him, arms and legs pumping. He was running purposefully, as though with a definite goal in mind. Rick threw a glance back over his shoulder and saw his pursuers coming up on him. They were within range now. He saw one man lift a black box. From ahead, a wild yell, an instant before the shrill whisper of the box. Sergeant of the Guard, help! Rick's legs crumpled, and ahead he saw Scotty sway. He fought to keep his balance without success. He landed on the sidewalk and tried to keep crawling ahead. Every ounce of his will was concentrated in terrible effort. He thought that he still moved, but he couldn't be sure. He kept trying, even when he realized he wasn't moving. He rolled over, faced the night sky, and his imagination filled the sky with leaping bodies. And he thought, I'm going crazy. They were flying at him, past him, coming out of the sky from nowhere, some in full uniform, some in shirts and trousers. Right out of the sky. Marines! Chapter 11. The Next Target. 
Rick sat on a chair, his head in his hands. He was still dizzy, and his throat felt parched. Scotty was next to him, grinning from ear to ear, and around them were almost two dozen Marines in various stages of dress and undress. And opposite Rick sat Gizmo, Scotty's taxi driver friend. I never saw such a sight in my life, Rick said. Honest, I thought I was going batty. I lay there on my back, and you guys came right out of the sky. It was so weird. Weird and wonderful, Scotty agreed. No kidding. I expected to see you wearing wings. Gizmo, grinning widely, repeated what he had told them five times previously. We were all having a bull session when that yell for help came. That sergeant of the guard business was what made us move fast. We didn't know what was up, but from the tone of voice, we knew some ex-serviceman was in plenty of hot water. So we didn't bother going through the gate. We went right over the wall. It's a high wall, too. Wonder we didn't break our necks. A youthful Marine lieutenant, the officer of the deck, pushed his way through the group and spoke to Rick. I call that number. Your friends will be here in a few minutes. Rick had given him the number of the hotel and asked him to call, knowing that the clerk would send Steve Ames or someone. Lieutenant chuckled. Wasn't funny at the time, but now that it's over and I can see the whole picture, believe me, it is funny. He sat down in a vacant chair. I was just coming back from making the rounds and heard you yell. Next thing I knew, this bunch of madmen came pouring out of the armory and flew over the walls. I ran after them and jumped up on the wall and looked down. All I could see was Marines, and all flat on their backs. I thought they were dead. Then I saw Gizmo and the Corporal of the Guard hightailing it down 23rd after a couple of people. The Corporal of the Guard, a youthful-looking Marine private, grinned. I was really hightailing it, too. My shirt wasn't tucked in, and the tail was flapping like a parachute. And what made it even funnier was I didn't even know why I was running, except the two guys were running away from me. They got into a car and beat it. Gizmo said. Some car, too. One of its headlights was busted, and the rear window was damaged. A husky six-footer in full khaki uniform scratched his head. What I want to know is what hit us. I was the first one to go over the wall. I saw Brant lying on his back, and a little farther up, Scott was on his knees trying to move. Then whammo, I'm on my back, too. Deffer than a post and not even able to wiggle my eyebrows. Same here, said another Marine, and several others joined in. Only Gizmo and the Corporal, the last ones over the wall, had escaped the box. Evidently, the wall had saved them. They had all come over the wall in response to Scotty's desperate yell for help and had run into the two gang members. The box had reaped a harvest of Marines for a few minutes. Then the two men had turned tail and run to their car. Rick wondered. Had they run because the whispering box was out of compressed air? Or had they realized it wouldn't be possible to knock out a whole barracks of marines and sailors? He would probably never know. No one answered the question of what had hit them. Scotty spoke up. I was running like crazy, right alongside the wall. For a while it didn't register. Then I remembered that a guard post was up at the next corner. I let out a yell, but I didn't have much hope. Then you guys dropped from heaven. Gizmo, how'd you get in on it? I come down here a lot, Gizmo said. Sometimes I have a couple of hours when there's no rush for cabs, so I come down, have a gab fest with the gang. 
I went through boot camp with a couple of them. Some of the others I knew when I was in the Pacific, before I got into the squad with you. A Marine showed up and spoke to the lieutenant. There's a man at the gate to see the officer at the deck, sir. Says his name is Ames. Send him in, the lieutenant ordered. Rick breathed a sigh of relief. Now Steve could take over, and he and Scotty wouldn't have to answer embarrassing questions. In a moment, Steve entered. His keen glance went from Scotty to Rick. The box again. Twice, Rick said. He shuddered. They almost had us when the Marines landed. Steve turned to the lieutenant. Did it get any of your men? Everybody here but those two, except for myself. Let's hear the whole story, Steve requested. The Marine story, that is. The corporal of the guard outlined what had happened. Steve nodded. He spoke to the curious group of Marines. Listen, gang, I know you're all plenty curious about what hit you and what Rick and Scotty were doing with a couple of hoods chasing them, but if you want to continue to be helpful, don't ask any questions. There was a chorus of complaints. Steve held up his hand for silence. I know it's tough, but if I tell you it's a question of national security, you'll all know what that means. Now keep quiet about this. Don't let it out of the barracks. I promise that within a week or two, we'll take you all out for a cup of java or something and give you the whole scoop. There was more grumbling, but the magic word secure effect, because there were no more questions. Rick and Scotty shook hands all around, thanking their rescuers wholeheartedly. Then Steve Ames ushered them out to the waiting car. Gizmo trailed behind. Outside the barracks gate, Steve spoke to Gizmo. You've gotten into this by accident, but your record is good, so I don't suppose it'll hurt. Want to stay on the case? Gizmo's face lit. Doggone right. Okay, report to the Hotel Elliston in the morning. Rick and Scotty will ride with you. You'll be their private chauffeur. From now on, they're not to walk anywhere, and they are not to ride with anybody but you. Gizmo saluted. Right, Chief. I'll take care of these two babes in the woods. You and a whole guard detachment, Scotty said, grinning. Thanks, Giz. We'll see you in the morning. They climbed into the waiting car and settled back. Now, what's the rest of it? Steve asked. Rick told him the story, beginning with when they had first noticed the pursuer. Steve listened in silence until the recital was done. Then he laughed grimly. I guess you know how lucky you were. Lots of people right here in Washington don't know there's a marine barracks over that wall. I didn't remember myself until it was almost too late. Good thing the marines are used to acting fast and asking questions later, Steve agreed. We'll have to do something nice for that gang. Well, guys, any great ideas? Why do those thugs want to kidnap you this time? Not because I look like Dad. Rick said. They must know the difference by now. You bet they know the difference, said Ames. It's pretty obvious that you boys know something which makes them uncomfortable. Either that, or they would like to hold you as hostages to keep Hartz and Brandt from going ahead with the counterweapon. We'll have to see that you chaps get better protection from now on. Rick noticed that the car had gone past the hotel street and was proceeding uptown. Where are we going? he asked. The lab. 
Your father and Dr. Kapner will want to hear about your latest brush with the whispering box. That business about a partial effect because of distance is interesting. It offers possibilities for a defense until some gadget is worked out to handle the job. We need to carry a defense in our pockets, Scotty said ruefully. They fell silent as the car sped through the streets toward the lab. Rick was going back over the events of the preceding hour. Every detail might be important to Dr. Kepner or Hartson Brandt. He wanted to be sure he remembered everything. He knew he couldn't recall their exact route. Perhaps it would help if he could see a map. He was curious about what their trail would look like on paper. He marveled at the assurance inspired in the enemy by the whispering box. The men using it hadn't seemed to be at all afraid of interference. They had gone about their work with a casualness and persistence that was terrifying. In the laboratory, Hartson Brandt and Dr. Kempner greeted them anxiously, then with relief when it developed that the boys were none the worse for their experience. I phoned the lab before coming after you, Steve told Rick. Now suppose you give your father and Dr. Kempner the whole story. Try not to leave out anything. Rick launched into a recital of the evening's events, omitting no details. Now and then, Scotty broke in to elaborate on a point that he thought important. When Rick had concluded, Hartson Brandt and Dr. Kempner started a barrage of questions. I want to know more about the distance at which the box operated, Hartson Brandt said. Rick, review that for me. Rick thought back. The first time the men had used the whispering box had been as they ran through the second underpass. He turned to Scotty. How far away was the man on foot when he turned the box on us? About 75 yards, Scotty said. That's only a guess, of course, but I think it's pretty close. I'm used to judging distance. And the effect was only partial? Dr. Kepner made notes on a pad of paper. Was that the first time... Either of the men got closer than a hundred yards? No, Scotty said. They were closer than that at first, but we doubled back so fast, I don't think they had a chance to get the box into position. Dr. Kempner continued making notes. Correct me if I'm wrong at any points. When you were hit by the box from 75 yards, you were deafened, but the deafness soon wore off. Also, your balance was disturbed, but not sufficiently so that your progress was materially hindered. Witness the fact that you managed to stay well ahead of the driver. That was because he wasn't in very good shape, Rick volunteered. Anyway, that's what I think. He kept up with us at first, but he began to lose ground a little, even before he fired the box. How about it, Scotty? Scotty agreed. That's my idea, too. By the time he got close enough to fire the box, he was out of breath. Toward the end, when we were crossing the field, we made better time than he did, even with our legs wobbly. Why didn't the car overtake you when you were on the road? Hartson Brandt asked. Rick thought back. A couple of times, it was because the car had to turn around. That took time. When we went through the second underpass, Scotty added, the car shot past maybe 50 yards of us. That's how it looked to me. But the driver was on the side of the car that was far away from us. By the time he could have gotten out, we would have been out of his range again. Steve Ames complained. There's too much talk about drivers. Let's get it straightened out. The man on foot was the driver of the car that almost got you yesterday, right? Now, was the driver of tonight's car the man who was in the car yesterday as a passenger? 
No, Rick said. I didn't get too good a look, but I'm sure it wasn't the same man. We'd never seen this one before. Scotty nodded agreement. What I want to know is why the men don't suffer from the effects of the box. I wondered about that while we were running. Do they have some kind of defense? I don't think so, Hartson Brandt said. It's evident the box is highly directional. Its effective field might be compared to that of a searchlight. The man in front of the light is blinded, while the man behind gets only a very small percentage of reflected glare. But anyone behind a car horn hears it as well as the people in front, Scotty objected. That's true, Mr. Brandt said. However, we are not dealing with audible sounds like car horns, Scotty. These are ultrasonics, which act differently. Remember that the higher the frequency of a wave, the greater its tendency to travel in a straight line. Steve Ames was obviously restless. During the questioning, he had risen several times and walked to the window, staring out into the street and then resuming his seat for a few moments. I'm getting into a fine state of nerves, he finally announced. We've made no progress whatever in collecting this gang. We've got no idea where Weiss and Zircon are being held. We don't have a defense against this thing. I'm sure the gang is planning something, maybe another attempt to break into one of our labs or offices, but not knowing where or when, it's kind of a tough job to set up a defense. Finally, I can't imagine why they made this second attempt to try to get Rick and Scotty. Yesterday, I was sure they mistook Rick for Mr. Brandt. Tonight, that theory no longer holds water. There's one more thing you haven't mentioned, Dr. Kempner reminded. What is delaying Dr. Bertona? He should have arrived by now. I'm checking on him, Steve said. I've wired our offices all the way from here to Cleveland. I should have a report on his whereabouts any moment. Rick asked, Why are you so sure the gang is planning another try at getting secret stuff? They're smart. So far, they've been smarter than we have. But they're also smart enough to know that no one can get fancy with the United States government for very long. They know that before long, we'll have a counterweapon. They also know that one of these days, a member of the gang is going to slip and will discover his identity. After that, it isn't a far step to getting dope on the rest of them. I think they have set up a definite number of items they want, and that they have set a time limit within which to get them. At least that's what I would do if our positions were reversed. That would account for their snatching Weiss and Zircon, Rick agreed. They could slow down the production of the counterweapon. Who are they, though? Scotty demanded. Spies? Steve shrugged. That's the jackpot question. Before we can answer that, we'll have to catch them. Their identities will tell us. Well, who else but spies from another country would want our secrets? Rick asked. Anyone who wants to get rich quick and doesn't care how he does it, Hartson Brandt said. There are always groups of men who will sell their own nation's secrets to the highest bidder, Rick. Steve Ames nodded. I have a hunch this is such a gang. For one thing, the secrets they've already stolen are not strictly military. They can be sold to industrialists of other countries as well as to governments. A request that they be told the nature of the stolen secrets trembled on Rick's tongue, his curiosity overcoming his reluctance to ask questions. But the telephone rang. Dr. Kepner answered it, then beckoned to Steve. Steve took the phone. Ames. Yeah? Okay, let's have it. 
He jotted down notes in a notebook, interrupting the man on the other end of the phone occasionally with terse questions. Finally, he closed the notebook and said, Keep checking. He replaced the phone and turned to the group in the lab. Well, here it is, he said flatly. Dr. Bertona boarded the plane in Cleveland as scheduled. He didn't even get off to eat or stretch his legs. He was aboard at every stop until Pittsburgh. He got off at Pittsburgh and went into the terminal building. Steve's grim eyes went from one face to the other. He never got back on the plane.